Uh, I hope you're warm enough this uh, beautiful winter's morning. Uh, and I hope you kept your thumb in Ezekiel 16. We'll come to that in a moment. Uh, but I have important news that I want to start with. Uh, I need to share with you that I am not at all happy with Prince Charming. All right, I'm not a fan. I know that might be alarming, but I think Prince Charming, the whole idea of Prince Charming has a lot to answer for. Uh, for way too long, isn't it true that our girls have been inundated with countless fairy tales that all end with this fantasy of Prince Charming? And you know how the story goes. It's the rich bloke that rescues the damsel in distress. Whether it's Cinderella or Snow White or Sleeping Beauty or Rapunzel or Beauty and the Beast or The Little Mermaid, it's a long list, isn't it? Uh, how does it work? He's the knight in shining armour, romantic, rich, handsome, valiant, the man of the dreams that rescues damsels from their plight. And he's set up as this ideal man, the stuff dreams are made of. And of course, the thing for the husband is that we're anything but that. We're not... Prince Charming, we don't live up to the fantasy, we don't live up to the expectations. So, of course, what hope do we have? Am I right? All right, Old Testament, here we go. The Old Testament has God portrayed as a husband. And so, in Isaiah 54, verse 5, it says, Your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, he is called the God of all the earth. That's staggering, isn't it? And then we get to Ezekiel 16, this passage that Kathy read to us. And it provides an allegory of marriage between God the husband and his bride, Jerusalem. And the story goes, the husband loves his wife. If you have Ezekiel 16 open, you can see verse 5. It says, once nobody looked at her that's Jerusalem, with compassion, thrown out into an open field, despised. But verse 8, old enough for love, he covers the corner of his garment over her, he covers her nakedness, he makes a covenant with her, he dresses her in fine linen, verse 10, and jewellery, verse 11. The food he gives her is the best, verse 13. And at the end of verse 13, we're told, and 14, she rises to become like a, uh, like a beautiful queen, a perfect queen full of splendour. And I don't know about you, but I think that sounds like transformation, doesn't it? That sounds like a knight in shining armour experience. It's incredible. And of course, what we didn't go to is her response. Can you see how she responds in verse uh, 15, let me find it. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. Dun dun. Alarm bells. And it only gets worse from there. Uh, she melted down the jewellery and turned them into male idols. In verse 20, it says that she took their children and sacrificed them. And then she built shrines, think brothels for her use in every public square, verse 25. Her behaviour was so shocking, verse 27, it says that even the Philistines were appalled and shocked. 
You know things are really bad when the, uh, the Philistines think this is shocking. It says at verse 32 to 33, she preferred strangers to her own husband. In fact, the text says she pays them. Is this not the wife from hell? This is the wife from hell. This is a black, sick picture of Jerusalem's betrayal. God's people and their unfaithful, adulterous relationship with their God. It's nauseating. This wife does not love her husband. She has completely and outrightly rejected him. And so Ezekiel, the prophet speaking into this, tells God's people, verse 38, I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Wow. Of course, it's not the end because we know that God is also a patient, loving husband that takes initiative and seeks restoration and reconciliation no matter how black the picture seems. Uh, Look at verses 62 to 63. Verse 62, So I will establish my covenant with you And you'll know that I'm the Lord. And then when I make atonement for you, ding, 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 for all you have done, you remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. In Hosea 14, it says, I'll heal their waywardness and love them freely. And what did they do to deserve this generous, forgiving, unconditional love? What did they do? (laughs) Nothing. It's completely undeserved. And no matter how black things seem to get, remember and see that Ephesians has already told us that once we were sinners, Once we were people of darkness, once we were akin to an unfaithful wife. Remember that God loved us unconditionally, that he took the initiative in our life and he has rescued us and he has forgiven us, that he has been patient with us and he sought to reconcile and restore us to himself. And that is all of Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. And if you missed that, go back and read it. Because we're told there that even though we were like this, now we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's awesome. It's wonderful. And of course, now we come to chapter 5. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus now is portrayed as the husband. Here is the faithful husband that fulfills covenant promises. Made back here in Ezekiel. Promises where we know Jesus makes atonement. 
He rescues his bride from her own unfaithfulness, just as promised. His bride isn't Jerusalem. His bride is God's people, the church. It's us. We are the bride. And so as we look at this section of Ephesians, we'll see Christian marriage is to image It's to pattern after the relationship between Christ and his church. What is to be true in our homes is to be true in the church. And what is true in the church is to be true in our homes. Because it's true of Christ and his relationship to us. And so at times the text will speak to husbands. And other times it's going to speak to wives. But ultimately, this is a text that speaks to all of us because this is a message about Christ and his church. So if you're sitting there and you're a single person and you think this isn't for me, you're mistaken. It's for all of us. Notice a few things about Jesus, the husband. The first picture is Christ's attitude to his body, the church, of which he is uh, its head and its saviour. Verse 23. So you need to return to Ephesians 2. Chapter 5 now, like I need to do. Verse 23. So pick it up, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Uh, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. So we're talking about noticing a few things about Jesus, the husband. And we've read there that he is the head. And he is the saviour. Now there's that word head. What does headship mean? Uh, It's important for us as we come to this text to remember that the ancient world did not think of the head's relationship to the body in modern neurological terms like we might, in terms of brain and mouth and whatnot. Um, You can watch a, a news story about a head transplant tonight on the Sunday program. The ad was enough to make me go... Oh, that's gross. But there it is. So how did the ancient world think of the head? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, I think are a pretty good clue. So verse 15, it says, chapter 4, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ, From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see it? It's the same idea in Colossians 2.19, if you want to check that. It's the head's integration and the head's nurture of the body by whom the whole body grows and is built up. See, the idea is that you knock off the head and there's no growing, nurturing, feeding and building up of the body. You knock off the head and the body becomes dysfunctional. It's where all the action is. You cannot sustain one's body without the head. How do you feed the body without the head? You can't. Uh, It's where the food goes. It's where all the thinking happens. The head is the very life source of the body. I mean, we live in the bush. We know what a headless chook looks like, don't we? 
We know how that rolls and you know how it ends. It doesn't end well. We know what a football team is like without its captain, dysfunctional, or an army without its leader. And don't we know what the body of Christ is like without its head, Christ himself? It's clear at this point to communicate what headship is not. Headship is not about authoritarian domination and tyranny. The Christian husband is not about tearing down or destructive behaviour or abuse or any other kind of behaviour that stunts family growth. The alpha male, know-it-all, on, on the my way highway, there's no place for that. Those things are the opposite of what Christian headship is, I think. Instead, as we read here in Ephesians chapter 5, we see the true nature of headship is about serving and leading, yes, in love, nurturing, growing and building up one's wife and family in Christ as your responsibility. And so a massive implication at this point is, yes, it's true, husbands ideally are to be the spiritual leaders in their homes. And that is God's pattern. The spiritual well-being of our families is ultimately the husband's responsibility, according to the scriptures. And the same truth applies to God's people as well. The same pattern. Because what goes for the church goes for home. Of course, on the home front, this is a challenge. Uh, for myself at home, it's a challenge. Being concerned, not only to be a physical provider, but also an, uh, uh, an emotional provider and a, and a spiritual one as well. And so what does that mean in concrete terms? Well, it means that I'm praying with my children every night, absolutely. And we're sharing Bible stories and we're encouraging them and nurturing them in their young faith. They're asking us questions all the time and we try our best to answer them. We try and remind them of what Jesus is like and we try and think about life and our priorities in light of Jesus and in light of the scriptures. Is that easy? Uh, it's, it's a joy most of the time, but sometimes that's a challenge. Love our family this way, we do it because this is our responsibility, verse 23. Now hopefully this gives husbands a sense of perspective. Our, what it means is our lack of spiritual food doesn't only affect us. If the head is not getting food in its mouth, it doesn't hold much hope for the rest of the body. It affects our family. Our lack of spiritual diet compounds the problem. And conversely, if we are going well, if we are growing in Christ ourselves, might I say that can only be a good thing for our families too. Here's the second thing. Uh, verse 28, it's another similar picture. Uh, verse 28, in this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, who on earth hates their own body? It's pretty plain, isn't it? Uh, I can tell uh, by our posture that, that we're all pretty good at loving our own bodies. Um, true for me, true for you. Uh, we show we care for our own bodies by the fact that we keep feeding it, don't we? Verse 29 says that. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. And so the point is repeated. For the husband, as the head, they are to, they are to lead just as Christ is the head. And if we're not being nurtured and growing and built up by the word, then it doesn't only impact you, but it impacts our family as well. And of course, the same principle, remember, what goes for the home goes for church, the same principle applies in our churches. Can you imagine having a minister or church leaders or pastors who do not have their heads in God's word, who are not being fed, uh, spiritually nurtured uh, through God and his word, who, those who are not prayerful? You know how much of a disaster that is when that happens in the church, and so the same follows for the house. But these verses also remind us of what Christ does for us as our head, because he is our life source. He is the one that feeds us through his word. He guides us. He speaks to us. He nurtures us, and he directs us by his spirit. Look at verse 26. It says that he washes us. And he cleanses us. It sounds like Ezekiel, doesn't it? He makes us holy. He presents us as a, a radiant bride. He gives us everything we need. He meets all of our needs. And so here's the third thing. Verse 23, Christ is the head. His body, we've talked about that. But also Christ is the saviour. Verse 25, Christ loved his church as his bride by giving himself up for her. Christ's headship of the church is ultimately expressed by his sacrificial love for her. When wives read about submission here, they might be tempted to think that they've been done hard by. No way. This is the bigger ask. When we do marriage prep, in my office, I get them to read it. And I say, who's got the bigger call? Who has the, the biggest expectations on their shoulders? And they get to verse 22, wives submit, and they stop and they go, oh, easily the wife. I say, well, we've got to keep reading it. We've got to keep reading it. Because that's not what we find here. Love was the motive behind the greatest rescue plan of all time. This wasn't one damsel in distress. This was entire people. And we get a snapshot of that again in Ezekiel 16. Here is the big rescue by Christ who came for his church and loved us by laying down his life for us. So, you, Do you know the movie uh, The Princess Bride? Oh, it's, a, it's an absolute classic. It, it features a beautiful girl called Buttercup, right? She is beautiful. 
and a farm boy called Wesley, right? And Buttercup loves ordering the farm boy around, and it kind of goes like this. Farm boy, polish my saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by the morning. Or she'll say, farm boy, fill these with water. Farm boy, fetch me this pitcher. Uh, you are, right, jug. And each time the farm boy looks at her with hooded eyes and he replies to her, as you wish. Every single time. And eventually Buttercup wakes up and realises what the boy, the farm boy, is really saying to her. He is really saying, I love you. I love you. And so they fall in love and on the story goes and she meets the Prince Charming, right? I told you I didn't like Prince Charming, right? But what it is, is a demonstration of love in action, of laying oneself down in such a way that the woman can't help but give herself to the man. She's totally swooned by this guy because all he wants to do is serve her. Of course, that pales in comparison to the way Christ has loved us. But you get the idea. Christ gave himself up for his church by dying. Death on a cross. Humiliation on a cross. He laid his life down in such a way that his church, that's us, we can't help but devote ourselves and submit to Christ, our Saviour. And husbands are called in the same way to lay down their lives for their wives, to serve in such a way that one's wife can't help but respond in an act of devotion and submission, if you like. Now, this word submission has such a bad reputation only because it's been so abused. This is a beautiful, beautiful cycle of service on the one hand by the husband and a response of love and devotion. And yeah, I can't help but submit by the wife. That's the, that's the picture. And when it works, it is beautiful. Submission in this context is joyful and beautiful, not burdensome like the world might have us believe. So what is presented here is a beautiful picture of love characterised by service and sacrifice and submission. They go hand in hand. Now, husbands are thinking, well, what does that mean? Some people will say, well, I better go and do the dishes today. It's Sunday after all. I might better go here. Yeah, better get out and cut that lawn or change a nappy or whatever. Sure. And there's benefit in doing those things. But I want to say that mowing the lawn more often and lowering the toilet seat isn't ultimately going to transform a marriage. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about being like Christ. Being as Christ. When Christ showed his love for the church, he did it by submitting to the will of the Father. That's a much bigger thing. And when a husband shows his love for his wife, he will do it by submitting to the will of his Lord and Saviour, Jesus. It's not about mowing lawns. 
about you and your walk with Christ and glorifying God through faithful service and obedience to your King and Saviour. And the wife, shall we go, what a man, what a godly Christian man who loves his Lord as he loves his Lord. His love for me is obvious as he loves his Lord. It follows, they go hand in hand. And so the wife can't help herself. It's such a joy. That's the picture. It's a submission that should be seen in all of our relationships. And this is why it's about all of us, because this is a picture for all of us and for all our relationships, not just marriage, where we're always seeking to act joyfully for the good and for the benefit of other people. See, chapter 6, verse 1, when parents and children are committed to one another such that the children obey their parents. Imagine that. And the parents care for their children with tenderness, Without exasperating them, verse 4, this is a sort of family that we rejoice at. A marriage where the husband expresses his leadership in the home by laying down his life for his wife and in which a wife gladly and lovingly responds. It's more intimate and secure than anything Hollywood can offer up. Even the master-slave relationship, chapter 6, verse 5, is to be a joy to be in when both master and slave work out their respective roles with the welfare and the benefit of the other in mind. So you might be reading this text, some critics of this text say, but this is old-fashioned and it belongs in the context of the ancient world that we can't know and we can't understand. But I want to say that's bogus. How do I know it's bogus? Because Paul has anchored this truth in the Genesis account. You can see it there in verse 31. This is timeless. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God's words, he says that in Genesis chapter 2. This is a continuing truth today. And so it's not old-fashioned. I would submit to you this is a desperately needed ingredient in our society, this idea of submission. It's not a sign of weakness or inferiority. It's a sign of being filled with the Spirit. And of course we don't like it because it challenges any sense of selfishness and entitlement. Prince Charming sets up an unhelpful ideal. But Christ is that perfect relationship that we all long for. That's the point. Christ is the only true rescuer and he's better than any Prince Charming because he's the real deal. He slayed the dragon. He really did. Satan, 2,000 years ago on a rugged cross. And he slayed that dragon so that he could be free, rescued, restored, reconciled and transformed, changed. He is the rescuer that we love to submit to, isn't he? We can't help ourselves. It should never be a chore or a hard ask because we understand well his amazing love and his commitment to us that we would do anything for him and with him. 
And this is an incredible mystery that we could become one with him. Christ and the church, the bride and the groom. And so we come full circle. Verse 21. May we seek to submit to him and to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen.